Well, that can't go past. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's August 2022 and the political sphere contains the strange spectacle of two idiots fighting to become Prime Minister because anyone with a brain knows this is the worst possible time to take responsibility for the country. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thanks for the introduction. I'm not alone for this podcast. I have the pup, so Obi, say hello to everyone. Hello, Obi. We aim to provide an old-school filmgoer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast, or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called DoubleReelPodcast, and a DoubleReelPodcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 28. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, it's Scarlett Johansson's award-winning indie sci-fi, Under the Skin. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is 90s crime drama, Two Days in the Valley. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 28, it's attempts by various directors, writers, producers and stars to make the sci-fi action blockbuster Isobar. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses Steven Soderbergh's updated version of Solaris. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 28, we discuss sequel syndrome, Hollywood's obsession with making follow-ups to successful movies regardless of quality. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Friend of the pod, Mike, a suggestion for a future big conversation would be how Marvel have lost their mojo since Endgame. Have Ooh, they... Sorry, yes, 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 yes. Have they killed the golden goose by saturating the market with superhero films and TV shows, etc.? This multiverse thing is just shit. Disney have also fucked up Star Wars, apart from The Mandalorian and Obi-Wan, and the MCU is definitely going down the toilet. Is Disney the problem? That's that's definitely one for us to get our teeth into, maybe. We need about eight hours for that. Yeah. (laughs) On the big conversation we've got planned for this episode, Graham says Empire Strikes Back is the best sequel of all time. Corey says the Mm -hmm. best sequels are Mad Max 2, Aliens, Terminator 2, Godfather 2, and John Wick 2. The worst sequel, Speed 2. (laughs) That is shocking. Ryan says sequels should definitely only be made under the right circumstances. As long as you can make it make sense, keep the magic of the first while expanding the story and the characters. I'm all for sequels. On our classic Under the Skin, Tony Friend of the Pod says, I expect the younger James's reaction to this film will be similar to mine, i.e. shite. Always worse when you have high hopes. Hmm. 
A lot of chat on our Kubrick entry of Clockwork Orange. Tracy says, horrible film, never want to see it again. Alex says, this was like Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre for me. Built up reputation for years, then a bit dull when I actually saw it. Respect what it did for cinema, though. Stephanie says, this shocked me when I watched it, but I loved it. I've rewatched it several times. I think you can say there's a very diverse opinion on that film. Uh, on our one that got away isobar Stephen says my teenage self would have loved to have seen this film on our hidden gem two days in the valley judy says i have very fond memories of this film paul and owen agree thanks for all the messages even the ones we couldn't read out now on with the pod Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Just to quickly mention our other podcast, which you might like to check out, The Adamsons Versus. This is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our latest episode, The Adamsons Versus the Combat Dolphins, is out now. So, that bit of self-promotion to one side. The first thing we normally tackle on the uh, the roundup is uh, the news. So, what, what news has caught your eye lately, mate? Uh, I saw that um, Kevin Spacey has rightly had a bit of a fucking drubbing in court, which is always nice to see. Yeah. Um, because he's an asshole. Um, but he's in a lot of trouble. He's been ordered to pay a lot of money just to, just to a studio because they lost. Obviously, well, they had to spend money on editing the final season of House of Cards because of his misconduct yeah. and things like that. So he's been ordered to pay thirty-five million dollars. But that's before we get into the whole charges of sexual misconduct, sexual assault yeah. and rape and all that kind of thing. So yeah, not a good start for Kevin Spacey's um legal battles, which is good because he's a prick. A lot of chickens coming home to roost though by the looks of it. Yes, sir. Yeah, um it's been a quite busy month, I would say, for um famous uh people from the world of film passing away. There's been quite a lot. Mm. I mean probably a very high profile one that sort of broke in the past few days is Anne Hesch dying very dramatically, having yeah. a horrendous car accident, um and then spending a week in a coma and then being taken off life support. So she you know, after all of that incident, she died at the age of fifty three after what seems to have been not justifying what what sounds like a bad situation where she was under the influence of substances behind the wheel of a car but it sounds like she had a pretty pretty horrific life for a lot of times it sounds like it uh, it, me- it messed her up she, in a big way she had a lot of demons and I think she's probably at peace now now that's horrible to say and probably not what her family would want to hear but I think she's you know, yeah, she's it would have been not nice causing for herself it, any harm. You know, would have been a nice. There, she, there would, it would have been nice for her to find another way to be at peace. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. Um, other people who passed away: Bob Raffleson. He may not be on your radar, mate. He's died aged eighty-nine. He was a major figure in the New Hollywood of the sixties and seventies. Although he's not as famous now as his contemporaries, who worked with Jack Nicholson a lot. He uh, directed him in Five Easy Pieces and The Postman Always Rings Twice. He was one of the producers on Easy Rider. A seminal figure from that era, although he's perhaps not sort of passed into legend the way sort of Coppola yeah. and Scorsese have. Um, David Warner died at the age of 80. Um, he's been uh, mentioned on our podcast and things like Cross of Iron, Straw Dogs and In the Mouth of Madness uh, and Time Bandits, which we mentioned a couple of times. Uh, it's probably most memorably, uh, in the, memorably in the Omen 
um, one of the kind of uh, you know top quality set piece set pieces in the first Omen film featured him and the villain in Tron. Another sort of long productive career. He, he was one of those people that was very recognisable. Uh, Paul Sorvino died, aged eighty three, most famous for Goodfellas. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, um, Bernard Cribbins, who, to be fair, is mainly TV. Um, for our sort of overseas listeners, this guy's a proper national treasure. Um, his big screen contributions mainly a couple of big screen versions of uh, Doctor Who in the sixties, um, but he went as well. Uh, Nichelle Nichols, a Hura from Star Trek. Um, she's obviously an iconic figure in, in, in a number of ways. Bit of a trailblazer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Olivia Newton John. Um, oh who, yeah, that was who, sad. who I, I didn't know maybe because I just don't follow sort of the, the entertainment news that, that clo- closely. Maybe she'd actually had a very long on-off battle with cancer. I was aware of her having had cancer a long time ago, but I, I wasn't aware that she'd essentially been battling it for the best part of a decade. She's obviously you know very famous for uh, Greece. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of R- RIPs yeah. being um, being I handed know. out at the moment. It's been a busy one. Very sad. Any, any other news caught your eye? Um, no, like you said, there's a lot of deaths and the Kevin Spacey thing are the ones I can remember. We, um, I always I always try and remember from when we last did the news. So obviously the last month it was James Caan that had passed away. Yeah. So I was, it's just so much goes on in the world of film. But um, mm. Oh, uh, Will Smith issued an apology to Chris Rock. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, are I did see that. that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can look at that. I don't want to don't want to go into it too much, but Will Smith basically said, "Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm really sloppy, <laughs> sloppy. I'm really sorry. My hand touched your face. Yeah, I'm really sorry." Um, yeah. Apparently, Chris Rock's not wanted to have a conversation with him yet, which is too late because Will Smith's a bit of a fucking knob. So, yeah, it's actually. But you're right; it has been quite a busy month. Um, yeah, there is some actual news about films themselves um, that I wanted to mention sort of Marvel's sort of next sort of slate of films has been announced or publicised I saw a trailer at the cinema lately for Black Black Panther Wakanda Forever that would complete phase four Um, I think that that one's kind of very finely balanced because you don't have Chadwick Boseman this time Um, the other Marvel films lately have been a bit shit so a lot of a lot of weight on this one's shoulders on the other hand, Ryan Coogler is back. You know everyone involved in it is going to be very motivated to make it good, so we'll just have to see. Um, phase 5 announcements, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Um, Nobody cares. For a relatively minor character, he's he's quite he's on his third film. Um, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is coming out. Um, mm. the, the, a Captain Marvel sequel called The Marvels is coming out. I mean, given Captain Marvel is such a, a top line superhero in in, in the MC in, in the MCU, even though the films haven't been the biggest ones, I'm not surprised that's got a sequel. Um, obviously, the Blade re- reboot is coming out. We've talked about yes, before. Yes, that'll be good. Captain America: New World Order has been announced, which is right, okay. Anthony An- Anthony Mackie moving up from Falcon into the Captain America slot. Um, is he going to have powers? Because otherwise, it's basically the Falcon without wings and with a shield. I know we should probably save a lot of this for the big conversation that I was suggesting. I think it will be the next one, but I genuinely don't give a shit about the Falcon becoming Captain America. Do you know what I mean? I feel like they did so well and they kind of reached such a peak that everyone's expecting so much now. So these films have been a letdown. It's mm. it's bizarre that the CGI started to kind of dip in form. But yeah, I really feel like that after Endgame ending so strongly and making so much money, I do feel like they didn't have that much of a contingency plan about what was going to happen next. See, I think the quality of the CGI... We talked about the CGI thing last month, but I think the quality of the CGI tells you what the problem is, which is it's being turned into a production line. And whatever else you think about the yeah. last kind of slate of Marvel films, 
it was actually building something. It wasn't just kind of get the tins of beans on the shelf, you know, as Keith Richards famously said about music, um, hmm. the music industry. Um, and the other one they mentioned for Phase 5 is Thunderbolts, which is Marvel's equivalent of Suicide Squad. Um, uh... Again, it's hard to get excited, isn't it? Uh, and, and there's a little bit of DC news, which I thought was quite notable. Obviously, we don't want to spend a, a, mil, a million years on news, but um, the Batgirl film's been cancelled and won't ever oh, be released. fuck, yeah. So this has actually been a big thing in uh, where actually, obviously, it's just outside Glasgow. It was filmed there, wasn't it? A lot yeah. of it was filmed here because, um, for some reason, Glasgow City Centre could be made to look like pretty much any city in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they, that's why they did the latest Indiana Jones there, which is not just and, it's any place, any time, isn't and it? And Matt Reeves is the Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's weird because it, it's a bit annoying because the city obviously gained... Um, a lot of investment from it. People were given work. Production companies coming to the city is always a good thing and hopefully it continues to go in the future. But a lot of people made the point that businesses had to close in the city to film um, this film, missing out on income. Um, the place where I uh, yeah. get a tattoo done, they were moving to a new studio. So that new studio was used for filming. So it wasn't that much of a big deal mm. for them. But there were businesses like that that had to shut because they couldn't operate because of the film crews. And, you know, there's been some missed income there, um, which isn't always, you know, ideal. And then for the film to just be chucked into the pan like yeah, that is if, just a bit stupid. If the film came out, it might feel a little bit more worth it, mightn't it? Well, they spent $90 million on it. I'm convinced it would make its money back. Well, it's a DC film. It would make its money back. Well, here, here's the thing. This is what's really interesting. It's got very dark and, and murky. Uh, this this whole thing. So the rumours came out, which is almost certainly came from the studio themselves, that it's because it's a really bad film. But very right. quickly, those those rumours were kind of stamped on because a number of quite credible reports from you know and journalists, you know, industry journalists who've looked into this, it's pretty obvious that this is all about corporate politics because Warner is part of a huge media conglomerate owned by AT and T now. Or maybe AT and T sell them off. It's all it's hugely complicated. You probably for you know nefarious reasons, but yeah. they're selling off HBO Max or merging with Discovery, and that often leads to projects being canned for tax write-offs or to make way for a new slate of projects to rather promote or a new direction. And it's v- pretty clear to everyone that that is why this has been cancelled. There's no suggest, really, no genuine reason to feel why this film would be so bad they wouldn't release it. And there's mm. a really good quote from an article about this in The Verge, which which kind of sums that up. It says, what's wild is that until the variety stories seem to get at the real and callous truth of the cancellation, Warner Brothers Discovery was all too happy to throw the film's creator and star, all people of colour, under the bus with rumours that the film was shoved in the bolt for being egregiously bad. Despite the fact that most of us have seen Batman Forever, Catwoman, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman 1984, Joker, Suicide Squad, Superman Returns, Jonah Hex and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and know just how tolerant Warner Brothers typically is of dog shit superhero films. I would I would add Batman and Robin and subtract Joker from that list, but I think the point stands. Do you mean Joker with Joaquin Phoenix? I think so. I, I think so. That's not a bad film, is it? I don't. I don't think so. I, I, that that one stood out for me out of that list. But out of the rest of the list, it kind of does actually say how bad would a film have to be, right, for Warner Brothers not to release it? Oh, no. um, I, I, that's probably not the reason. So I think there's going to be some stuff coming out on that. I think it's um, it's the sort of thing where 
companies that do this end up looking quite bad. Warner took a kicking for kind of not supporting cinema last year and kind of pushing its kind of HBO Max streaming. And then a year later, it does it goes through a merger, which seems to be shitting all over the big HBO Max streaming thing, which was the big, wide, broad future. I think Warner Brothers is going to keep getting a kicking for this. I think Christopher Nolan speaking out against in the way he did kind of suggested the a climate of... of for them we'll see what happens on this because i wonder if maybe more is going to come out about the batgirl film and maybe even some in some way the you know some some just release the batgirl it. film it will work. make money it will if it's costing any money it might not make a billion but i reckon it'll make a couple hundred million maybe yeah. 300 million they're just this is what happens though viable films that get canned uh they they did this to the 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 new mutant the new mutants which wasn't classic but turned out to be a lot better than the rumors so they've done it before they'll do it again bizarre yeah I mean, this is why we have the one that got away feature, because there are a number of really irrational reasons why films don't get released or don't get made when, when they really ought, ought to. So, you know, this is but another I one. I feel like it's different nowadays because cinema is such a moneymaker that even films that are bad, people will go and see. For example, Transformers somehow kept making a $1.2 billion every time they came out, despite them being utter dog shit, because people will go and see them. So one that's quite rare that we've got a new one that got away if this film doesn't end up getting released. This is all down to the boardroom, and they, they could probably do better in tax write-offs than they could from the rev- revenue of the film, which is, just mm. shows what the mentality of the people at the top is. It's not about letting people watch films that they might like. Oh, well. So there you go. Um, any other news caught your eye, or is that? Don't uh, think so. I think uh, that's me. That's pretty, pretty healthy, uh, pretty healthy month for news in that sense. So we always go from there to uh, the new releases, the films that are out at the cinema um, that you could go and see. Uh, we go from the, you know, on or after the day that this podcast comes out uh, to, you know, the, the the next kind of dates. So we tend to go twenty fifth to twenty fifth is, is our time period. Twenty uh, sixth of August, the Invitation. It's a modern day gothic horror. Um, Beast is coming out Idris Elba is a man on safari in Africa with his daughters who are stalked by a rogue lion sounds like Jaws on the Savannah oh no saw a trailer it looks crap um, 2nd of September The Forgiven Jessica Chastain and Ray Fiennes uh, starring in it it's about a random accident in Morocco that has various consequences for the local uh, population Moroccan population and the western visitors uh, that it relates to uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. We talked about this previously. It's the new George Miller film, um, which looks like a sort of modern adult fantasy version of the Genie and the Lamp story with Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. It's got very mixed reviews, but based on the, the cast, the the story that it's based on by A.S. Byatt is one of our greatest writers and George Miller directing it. I'm probably going to go and see that, but I generally don't know what it's going to be like because the reviews haven't been haven't been great. Uh, also, that, coming out that week, The Territory, which is about battles between the indigenous population of Brazilian farmers over land in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, 9th of September, Bodies, 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 comedy horror about 20-somethings having a hurricane party in a family mansion that goes wrong, which is getting pilloried, and the trailer looks absolute garbage. Um, Crimes of the Future, which is the latest David Cronenberg film. He's gone back to body horror. This is about futuristic body alteration. I'm very excited about this, but I'm, I'm aware that it won't be for everyone. Um, See How They Run um, is coming out, which is a spoof of classic whodunit mysteries. It's like a spoof of those like 1950s kind of detective stories, very British slant. It's directed by a bloke of British TV comedy. He did a series of This Country, if you, if you ever watched that. Uh, it's oh, got, yeah. It's got a great cast, though. Sam Rockwell, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, Saoirse Ronan, David Oyelowo, and one of the characters is a young Richard Attenborough. They're doing a fictional story around Richard Attenborough. It sounds really interesting. Um, just see how that one pans out. Um, 
Fire, a French love triangle thriller starring Juliette Binoche. This is directed by Claire Denis, who Mark Kermode absolutely loves, so that might be good. Um, 16th of September, Ticket to Paradise. George Clooney and Julia Roberts as divorced parents who travel to an island holiday location to try and stop their kid making the same mistake they made. Trailer is super average. Um, Cla Clara Sola, Costa Rican indie drama, which is getting rave reviews from the critics. 20th, 20th of September, Shark Bait, a low-end shark attack film, which looks absolute garbage. Yes. Um, uh, and Don't Worry Darling, it comes out on the 23rd of September. This is Olivia Wilde, the actress. She's getting into directing now. It's her second time behind the camera. This is set in a 1950s oh, kind of gated yeah. community that harbors dark secrets. Um, Florence Pugh, Chris Prine, uh, Harry Styles, Gemma Chan. I, I'm kind of going to wait for the reviews on this, but if it's got good reviews, Olivia Olivia Wilde's last film was was, was well received. So if she's if she's done a good job in this one, this could be very good actually. So I'm going to wait and see what the reviews are like for that. Okay. So yeah, sort of interesting slate of films coming out there. Um, now we tend to move from there from what we what you could go and watch uh, as the audience. What some of you know some of the films we're going to try and go and watch um, to what uh, James and I have watched uh, this month. Have you have you been to see anything at the cinema lately? Uh, we've not really had the time. I'm so aware you've been busy. So so the basically we've just obviously got the puppy and he's only four months, so he's still getting used to being alone in the the like the property himself. So it's kinda yeah. like we when we're both we're both back at work now, so we've not had the time to go to yeah. the cinema, but we've been making up for it. We went on a really big Pixar spree. Really? Pixar and Disney spree. So we watched um Watched a couple of classics like um, Monsters, Monsters Inc. And I think did we watch something else? I can't remember. And then we watched Encanto, which isn't Pixar, but it's Disney. And well, then what, watched... what, did you, what did you think of that, by the way? I didn't like it. Like That's a shame. The problem was right. I watched Luca the morning. Yeah. In the morning, sorry, and then watched Encanto in the afternoon, and I really enjoyed Luca. Mm -hmm. Um. So Encanto's got some really catchy songs. It's not a bad film. I just think it kind of lacks the soul that you kind of expect from a Disney or a Pixar film. Mm, I, mean, I mean, again, Pixar's part of Disney, and it is part of the production line. I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that about Encanto because it's not shit. Uh, like, yeah, if you if you're if you've got a couple of spinners and you want to stick something on that's you know, you know, not offensive or anything like that, then yeah, it's good. It's yeah, I, I kind of I, I had kind of higher hopes for that because it's set in sort of South Central America. It's got some inflections of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's a a writer I really like. Um, not that you should have those kinds of ambitions for for. What, you know what you, you sort of maybe you shouldn't have ambitions like that for, for for films I think for Pixar films 20 years ago you would say if they attempt something like that it would it would normally be a classic do you know what I mean and it, it's probably a sign of the times that it's only okay yeah no it's um it's good the music's obviously written by Lynn Manuel Miranda who we yeah. both yeah we like um some of the songs are a bit blur but some mm. of them are um some of them are really catchy and you know it's it's, it's a good watch but oh, I watched Luca really enjoyed Luca yeah um, didn't make any money. I think it was during COVID or whatever. When didn't they stick it straight to streaming? They might have. Uh, yeah. I'm not entirely sure. I I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, and then watched Coco. Coco might be my favourite Pixar film now. Yeah, Coco's a wonderful film. I absolutely love that. I actually got to see that at the cinema with your sister. Uh, bloody love that. Really, really good. Yeah, I love my Pixar films, like the classic era of Pixar. And it might be my favourite Pixar film. Mm. It's got so, it's 
what's what's interesting about it is that to be to be honest, watching it, I thought oh, this is a fun film about the day of the dead and um, you know music and you know just one boy's love of his guitar and all that kind of thing. But the final like ten minutes are just absolutely wonderful. You 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 will cry, yeah. but you will laugh and you will enjoy it. it. Just really tugs on your heartstrings, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's everything um, you expect Pixar to be, right? Yeah, but, but what was interesting is that I can't believe that it might, they didn't really save the film, but the final 10 minutes make it probably my favourite Pixar film ever, like mm. the, the, the standalone 10 minutes. Good, good, good endings are very important. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just so, so good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, other films that I watched, um, I watched 8 Mile again, because um, it was on Netflix. Yeah. Um, Did it stand up this time? Oh yeah, still great. It's still a great film. Um, but yeah, I think that given that we've had, I think because oh, I, and I, sorry, I also broke my foot, didn't I? So yeah. I had a lot of time, you know, just sat with my foot literally up. Above um, work, yeah. So yeah, I had more time to watch um, films and stuff like that. So yeah, we watched quite a few. Yeah, so that probably covers your resolution for this year, which is to try and watch as you know as many films as you can. That's probably me back till October. I'm not gonna yeah, lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if we look at what I watched, I, I did go and see a couple of things at the cinema. As I said in the previous episode, I'd booked on to see 2001 in Repertory Cinema in, in London. Um, that's obviously a major experience. I won't go into the film because obviously we discussed it fairly detailed last month, but on the biggest screen uh, that you can find it, it's just such a, 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 an amazingly intense experience, so recommend that. If you are lucky enough to be within reach of a Repertory Cinema that shows older classic films, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um I went to see Nope at the cinema. Oh, okay. So Jordan Peele's third uh, film as a director, the follow-up to Get Out and Us. Daniel Kaluuya returns uh, in the lead alongside Kiki Palmer as his sister. You also get a decent supporting turn from Stephen Yoon, who will always be Glenn from The Walking Dead in our house. <laughs> um, it's a UFO slash alien invasion film much more than it's a horror film. I would say, although obviously there's a big crossover between those two things. But it, you know, if if it's um. Jordan Peele's not kind of messing with genre too much here. He's doing that genre of film, but he's doing it his way. Um, there's a lot of mystery in the film surrounding what, what's going on and what the mysterious phenomenon, over, phenomenon overhead really is. But if right. you've seen a trailer, you vaguely see it. it it's, it's, it's a UFO, it's an alien. Okay, That's not a spoiler, because as the film unfolds, you find out a lot more about the alien and what it's doing and what kind of thing it is. So okay. that's... and I. It's not like an M. Night Shyamalan type reveal, where if you know that if you get the reveal, it's kind of that there's no reason to watch the film, right? Because actually, watching it unfold is is the reason to watch the film. Do you know what I mean? You gradually find out about what what the characters in the film are up against. So, um, it's obviously got a bit of a Western hint, sort of um, stylistic sort of touch to it, because the whole thing, most of it, takes place on a horse ranch. There's also a satire, a little bit of satire on Hollywood because the characters are all connected to the showbiz industry in some way. Danny Kaluuya and his sister are running their recently deceased father's ranch to provide horses for Hollywood. So if you need a horse for a film, you need animal wranglers, right? Yeah. Um, now, there's some subtext to the whole film, but I think it's nicely judged in the sense that if you if you, if you you pay attention to the, the themes and the sort of a, maybe a bit of an underlying message, I think that enhances the film. But if you ignore it, the film stands on its own. Do you know what I mean? The, the bit where the alien yeah. is is there and shit's going to happen stands up enough on its own. So you can either enjoy Jordan Peele's little extra themes or or just enjoy a what's essentially 
Jordan Peele's idea of a summer blockbuster. And I think it delivers on being a summer blockbuster because it's exciting, it's thrilling. You get a nice cameo from uh, Keith David. I don't want to tell you too much about the story, but mysterious stuff has happened. It it, it starts to kind of get scary and weird. Um, the interesting bit to this is because these people are all kind of vaguely attached to Hollywood or trying to be part of Hollywood, everyone's hustling. And that's the what they the way they react to the alien is different because of that. Do you know what I mean? Because they live in a showbiz type world. Um, otherwise, it's um, it's visually impressive. The design of the UFO is quite inventive. The suspense is good. Um, there's a nice supporting turn by Michael Wincott as a crazy cinematographer. I don't think it's as good as um, Get Out. Get Out is still by far his best film. I don't think its best moments are as good as the best moments in Us, but I think it hangs together as a film better than Us. And I think it's like a... If you want to go and see like an exciting, thrilling, like, blockbuster film, this this isn't like a 200 million blockbuster film, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an exciting thriller. I think this is a good film for you to watch this summer if, you, if, if that's what you like. So I just think it's, uh, you know, a nice turn from Jordan Peele. Thank you very much. Enjoyed that. Look, what's next? Do you know what I mean? Very good. Um, I saw a couple of new or newish films on streaming. I watched The Grey Man. That's the the, oh, Rus- yeah. the Russo brothers who directed The Avengers um, or a couple of The Avengers films. Ryan Gosling is the convict with a traumatic past. He's given a second chance to get out of prison to become an assassin for the CIA. Becomes the best of the best, etc., etc. You got Chris Evans as the main antagonist. You've got roles for Billy Bob Thornton, Anna De Armas, and him out of Bridgerton. I know he has a name, but him out of Bridgerton is what Reggie Jean Page. That's the I one. Think, yeah. I think that's what you say. I probably yeah, butchered yeah. that. But. It's got all the double cross bad guys and good guys being, you know, blurred lines, lots of action set pieces, but it's completely disposable in one ear and out the other. They're not interested in the story, so why should I be? Um, it's no better than something like, say, Six Underground, where a lot of money's been spent. Yes, that was a good car chase. Do not care one shit about the story. <laughs> um, I also watched uh, Prey, the Predator prequel. Is that a film or a series? That's a, that's a, that's a film. Oh, is it? I thought it was a series. No, no, it's a, it's, it's a film. It's, uh, okay. it's it's basically part of the Predator franchise. I'm disappointed it wasn't shown on the big screen because I think it would have been really good on that, but it's available to watch on Disney Plus to stream. It's uh, it's a prequel in the Predator, Predator storyline. It's set 300 years ago in North America on the Great Plains in Comanche Territory. A young woman from the tribe's intent on breaking out of traditional gender roles and becoming a hunter-warrior. Um, she she's the first to realize that what is attacking them is not what you'd usually expect. It's not an animal. It's not a rival tribe. It's mm. not settlers. It's something far worse than it's that. An ugly motherfucker. Yeah. And, uh, it's a highly lethal being who's hunting them for sport. Um, it's directed by Dan Trachtenberg who did 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, oh, you yeah. can, you can watch it in the English version or you can watch it in Comanche with subtitles. If you oh, want that's extra fucking cool. Yeah. So I watched it in Comanche with subtitles. I felt like such a hipster. Um, Overall, I liked it. It took the trouble to build its sort of world and characters. I was quite convinced. Yeah, this is the this is Comanche territory in the seventeenth century. Go for yeah, go for it. Let's see. Um, clever touches like what makes you invisible to the predator this time isn't mud like in the Arnie film. It's something else. But that was not that was a nice touch. Um, the action's exciting. It's always good to see some proper R-rated gory action instead of being watered down to be a twelve. Um, it was a bit slow burn, right? I wouldn't want them to drop the sort of development they did of character in the world and because the the main character is a young girl she's still learning some of her skills she's skilled but she's still learning there's a scene where she's throwing a tomahawk 
And she figures, well, if I keep throwing this tomahawk, I've got to run after it, kind of pull it out, whatever it's landed in, and then turn around. And that's not very effective. So she ties a rope to it and keeps one end of the rope so she can spring it back. So you see her kind of learning her, her trade as a hunter. Okay. Quite cool. I like that. It's just the whole film's only like 100 minutes long, you know, and I'm, I'm not against that. I don't, I don't like every film being like a minimum of two and a half hours long. But I think there's a bit of tension between that. Let's keep this just to a tight 100 minutes, of which 10 minutes is the end credits, remember? Yeah. Mm. Um, when you've done this kind of world building at the start. I think with the world building they've done, they're doing the right to make the film just that little bit longer and have a bit more kind of action building up. I think there's a missing scene like early on where maybe one of the Comanche tribe or is kind of like attacked by something out of the out of the trees that just lets you know the full jeopardy of what you're doing. I know we all know it's a predator, right? And it's fine, but I think I think it was a little bit slow burn. It just needed a little bit more jeopardy at the beginning. And I, I think you know if it had been ten minutes longer and had add those added scenes, I think it would have been talking out an excellent film. In the end, I thought it was. Um, I thought it was it was good. It's the best Predator film since the first one. Very nice cinematography. Um, the high watermark for action films featuring indigenous peoples of the Americas is still Apocalypto. And for North America in the general period, Last of the Mohicans is better. But, I mean, that's no disgrace not being as good as them. Decent film. Amber Mid-Thunder is the, the main uh, actress. Very good. Um, I looked this up afterwards. Historically, there is some precedent for stories of female warriors among Native Americans who've been overlooked somewhat in a historical record. So it's not completely far-fetched that there would be a woman warrior. Um, obviously, it's got a very modern feminist slant in the way it makes the film. All films are more modern. You know, all period films are a bit more modern than what they're, than what they're showing, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem with it. It's fine. I think it's worth a watch. I mean, given that it's just sitting there to be clicked on on Disney+, Plus, it's worth a watch. Wish I'd seen it on the big screen, though. Apart from that, it's fine. Oh, very good. Um, so we've kind of we've kind of done your um, uh, resolutions, haven't we? Um, yes. So my my news resolution for 2022 was to do another 12 month project along the lines of the John Carpenter one I did last year, uh, and uh, this year is 2022 a Kubrick Odyssey, where I watch Kubrick's films in order, first to last. Had to do a bit of fancy footwork in the first month and watch his two sort of early films. But other than that, I'm going to get through all of his films this year in chronological order because I think it's an interesting way to watch Kubrick's career progressing. We get to Clockwork Orange, 1971 is the one mm. we're doing. This is his follow-up to 2001. Um, like 2001, it's science fiction. It's got a futuristic setting. There's some unsettling aspects to the story and it's got classical music on the soundtrack. Apart from that, it couldn't be more different. Um it's interesting this film comes out in 1971 because this is a year we keep coming back to. I mean, we, we did French Connection, which was kind of a, a milestone film from that year. We did Straw Dogs. When we were talking about those two films and the violence in them, we talked about Macbeth that came out that year, which was you know, quite shocking for its violence. Dirty Harry came out that year. This is almost like a pivotal year where a lot of things kind of really fall into place with movies and the sort of the violence on screen and the moral panic that ensued is that... I mean, the reason I'm sort of mentioning this is that the, 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 the context around Clockwork Orange is almost bigger than the film. This film became legendary when I was growing up because you heard about the controversy, how violent and depraved it supposedly was, but you couldn't watch it for yourself because it had been taken off release. And that only builds it up more, right? Clockwork Orange, bloody hell, right? Um, I first saw it on an presumably unauthorized copy projected at the University Film Society years and years ago. Then in the year 2000, I went to see it when it was finally released theatrically again after Kubrick's death, and I'm watching it again now. Those are the only times I've watched the film. It's not a film I rewatch, um, And it's strange, really, because... I mean, have you seen Clockwork Orange, mate? 
I have. It is, it is quite a tough watch. <laughs> but for, despite being a tough watch, though, I wouldn't say it was as violent, or I wouldn't say the violence in it was as sort of extreme or as strong as, as films that have been made since, or even one or two films that were made that year. Um, I don't know. I still think that, you know, that scene, you know, yeah. you know the one I mean, um, that S- one's Singing still- in the rain. Yes, that one. That's still pretty fucking brutal. Do you know? Do you know what it is about the violence in this film? It's it's about because it's about young a group of young men who are a, essentially a gang, a criminal gang. All the futuristic trappings, the clothing that they wear, and everything is set in the future. But essentially, it's you know the idea of any sort of gang who all dress the same and act the same and belong. You know, essentially, do it for a sense of belonging. And and here's the kicker: they they, they love the violence. And I think it's the tone of the scene because everyone involved in that violence is really loving what they're doing. And that's what stuck with people all of these years. Do you know what I mean? I think, for, you know, for example, in, in a war film, you can show some real violence, but there's almost this element of, well, you can either say that it was a war and you're fighting the Nazis, so it, you know, it's, it's justifiable to portray it, or war is a horrendous thing, so it's justifiable to show that. Yeah. And this is, this is showing violence in a, in a way that says, guy. It's also being shown from the point of view of the protagonist talking about how much he enjoyed murder, rape, and beating people up. And that's the bit, more than the actual depiction of violence itself, that's what really screws people up watching this film. It's it's really dark because this guy is telling the story of how the good old days of when he was in a gang doing all this to people. And... and singing singing in the rain while he's while he's kicking those people and it being set to classical music and very elegant and beautifully shot that that's what i think really is that's the gut punch for people because i think people just are, are, are upset by that and i think that was kubrick's intention he really wanted to make people really uncomfortable upset that this little shit look how much he loves his violence do you know what i mean um there's some there's some interesting bits where you can tell part of what Kubrick's talking about in the film because there's a bit where he's watching uh, a violent rape. When they, when they start to brainwash him against his violence to try and cure him, in, in, in his narration, he's watching the film and he said, funny how the colours of the real world only seem really real, real when you see them on a screen. And obviously there's something in that for Kubrick. He's partly commenting on the fact that, you know, violence is deplorable, but we don't have to watch a lot of it on screen. Do you know what I mean? Um, as, as for the film itself, I think all the futuristic talk has got slightly mixed results. All of that kind of uh, horror show, my brother said, some of it works, some of it doesn't. Because it's set in the near future, it's very 70s, which just looks very grim. You know, it's, it's, it's not exactly beautiful to, to look at. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, although I think it's beautiful. It's it's superbly done, but it's not very nice to look at. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's satire of authoritarianism, both left and right. Um, all the trappings of date of dated, but I think it's still, the, the, the underlying storyline still stands up. But it's just such a dislikable film. Um, it's quite. I mean, it, I guess it's quite interesting that like, toxic masculinity is portrayed very well in the film, and that's probably you know even more of a feature now. And if you watch anything like the Football Factory, or you know even though there's nothing like the quality of the same film but if you watch like gang you know mafia films any of these things there is an element of these men like do some of what they do is because they're in a little group together and that group group is important to them do you know what i mean so there's some interesting dynamics in there um there's some stuff um it's deliberately disorientingly shot with special wide angle lenses so that you would just feel uncomfortable watching what you were watching um i quite like the way in which the story it follows like that traditional young man's journey 
that you used to get in historical novels like and Fielding's Tom Jones, Tristram Shandy, Huckleberry Finn. It's like watching the development journey of this young man. But the coming of age story of a violent psychopath is it's clearly Kubrick has got his very, very dark sense of humour underneath all this. Um, and then at the end, when having been cured, he is then completely powerless in the real world because they might have cured him, but they haven't cured everybody else. Uh, and how his two former gang mates are now in the police because there's always room for a couple of thugs on the force. There's some very interesting commentary in the film. Um, interestingly enough, it was never actually banned. Uh, Kubrick just refused to let it be. He took he insisted on it being taken off cinema release in the UK and refused to allow it to be uh, released on home video. So the reason it was never shown wasn't that it was banned. It's that Kubrick was so upset by the response to it and a few copycat killings that he re he, he asked for it to be taken out of circulation. Um, so it's you know like I said we've talked as much about the reaction to the film as as, uh, as to the film itself but that, that is kind of the story of the film I mean there's a famous storyline in which um, Malcolm McDowell who plays uh, the main character he went to Hollywood he had a you know successful career over there as well uh, the first time he went to a Hollywood party where Gene Kelly was there uh, Gene Kelly famously being the person who sang Singing in the Rain in you know in th th that film originally and made it famous um, Gene Kelly walked out, wouldn't talk to Malcolm McDowell and walked out because he was so offended by the way um, uh, Malcolm McDowell had used Singing in the Rain in that violent rape and murder scene. Um, so it's just the reaction to this film was so, so strong and that will always be part of the story. Yeah. Um, which kind of brought me on to the impromptu top 10 that I'd like to do for this film because um, obviously the, the incongruous sort of mixture of like a happy song like Singing in the Rain with like a horrible, deplorable violent scene inspired me to look at another 10 memorable or unsettling or contrasting uses of uh, music in a film so in no particular order uh fallen with the rolling stones time is on my side silence of the lambs with goodbye horses american psycho featuring uh, hip to be square by huey lewis um reservoir dog stuck in the middle with you obviously uh boogie nights featuring the power ballad sister christian during a shootout um, Goodfellas using Atlantis by Donovan uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Orinoco Flow uh, Gross Point Blank I Can See Clearly Now Lethal Weapon with Jingle Bell Rock and Train Spotting with Perfect Day so that's our impromptu top 10 um, and that's Clockwork Orange uh, I'd have to say this isn't a film I'm going to be going to rewatch very often it's obviously a film that you watch because it's almost like an important document and Kubrick's an important filmmaker um, but uh, I don't like this film and I don't think Kubrick wanted me to, I think is my final word on it. Um, and not liking it doesn't mean I didn't admire it and think it's brilliant, but I, I didn't. I found it a very dislikable film. Um, so unless you've got anything else to add, mate, I think that's our roundup for this month. That is us. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly to classic submarine drama Das Boot. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. If you want to recommend something, you can go to letterbox.com slash double reel, look at our watch list, 
uh, and suggest any more either there or on the usual places on our socials. This month, we're featuring a singular and strange indie sci-fi film featuring Scarlett Johansson, which won awards and countless critical plaudits on release. The classics and recommended feature for episode 28 is Under the Skin. So, James, had you seen this film before we uh, we took it off the watch list uh, and did it for this episode? Uh, no, I hadn't. Um, I'd known about it. Um, it's obviously set in uh, my homeland. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I remember. I remember we spoke about this, and you said, "Yeah, it's a it's a film set in Scotland, and it's got an alien in it, and that alien Scarlett Johansson." I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" It, it's a fast. It's a fascinating idea. That's what attracted me to it. I hadn't seen it. I heard all the reviews, um, and and obviously because it's linked to other films that we've talked about on this podcast, like the one that got away of Claire Noto's The Tourist, and we talked about The Man Who Fell to Earth. We talked about Starman. Uh, and other films, uh, you know, and obviously things like Men in Black and District Nine. There's this whole conversation about films that w- where the relationship with aliens is important. Uh, so obviously looked up this film and went, okay, it's about an alien who drives around in a van in the body of an attractive woman, uh, preying on men to take them to some sort of strange, horrible doom. And it's setting in and around Glasgow, so that's an unusual setting for a film. There's all sorts of reasons why I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. We should, we should, and and also the fact that a, a relatively big film star like Scarlett Johansson is interested in doing the movie. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's a very indie film. It's it's set in a sort of place where you know you don't normally see Scarlett Johansson. And despite being not as big as she is now, but still a pretty big film star at the time, she goes, "Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do this. You know, unusual, indie, strange, possibly sort of weird and unsettling sci-fi film." All of which reasons to say, "Yeah, I'll give that a watch." Um, now, th- there was obviously a hint in the, you know, the, the comments we had on the socials from Tony, and and, and and sort of hinted in your response to tell you on that. Did did you like this film? I think I've got a little soft spot for it because it is in Scotland and it's it's got that kind of oh look it's my it's like I've been there I've yeah. parked there kind of yeah. kind of vibe to it. It's not great though, is it? It's not. It's a great idea, but I think they just didn't really have the funds to pull this film off properly. They only spent, probably, I imagine, about 10 quid on it. Um, so I feel like if it, if it was done properly, it, it could be done well, but mm. I wouldn't go so far as to call it shite because I do have a little soft spot for it, um, but it's it's not the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny, really. I mean, I, I really wanted to like this because this is so completely up my street. Films like this are films I like to see. I like to see people making a genuine commitment to like independent, hard science fiction cinema because it's usually more imaginative than just big ray guns and rockets on you know in space where they spend two hundred million dollars and no one's got a single fucking idea in their heads. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's it's again. I mean, I, I am genuinely interested by the story of Claire Noto's The Tourist. So any film that kind of comes at least in part from that legacy, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in seeing. Um, I don't think the director. Uh, of, of this film is like a, a major filmmaker, Jonathan Glazer. He's done a lot of music videos and the film Sexy Beast with Ray Winstone, which um, I've not seen Sexy Beast and a lot of people who love it. Um, it doesn't automatically say that like a, 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 a British gangster drama is the right kind of grounding to make a film like this. So, But, you know, he's not done much since. He's not kind of emerged as the next kind of, you know, great filmmaker. Um, I don't know. There's a lot in this film that I really like, right? There are scenes in the film which I really, really like. And the idea, yeah. I thought it's very visually inventive, the way that they portray the, 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 the end of the seduction, where Scarlett Johansson 
seduces the guy and he's prepared to go home. I can't believe my luck. Uh, here you go. Although it's very interesting that a lot of those scenes were improvised. They Basically, some of the time, Scarlett Hansen was driving around in a van, picking a guy up with a hidden camera and chatting to him. And, and afterwards, they would say, by the way, we're actually making a film. Are you OK for your footage to be used? Because they wanted it to be really natural. All of these are things I really like in concept. But I don't know if you feel the same. It felt like there was something really majorly missing from the film, which is if you hadn't read up, right, would you have been that clear on what was going on and that this was an alien? Say for like the first kind of 45 to 50 minutes of this film. Mm, I suppose. I suppose yeah, a lot of it could be that she's not an alien and what she's doing is just like a bit supernatural. If you get what I'm saying, like what goes on in the film isn't necessarily the work of an alien and you don't know she is an alien. Mm. This is a very unclear point, but yeah, I get what you're no, saying. No, until I, the I video, until yeah. the end, until the end of the film when you're like, oh shit, she's an alien. I don't know if that was meant to be some sort of big reveal. There are kind of hints that she yeah. is obviously, I mean, she's obviously not normal if she's going about trying to, mm. you know, but there's the, the you know there's an opening scene. I don't want to spoil the film too much, but there's an opening scene where a body of a woman is picked up and taken away in a van, and a man on a motorcycle who doesn't speak, but is clearly working with or controlling or directing the activities of uh, Scarlett Hansen in some way. Does that hands the van over to Scarlett Hansen and drives off, and Scarlett Hansen drives off, and it's like some of this. The way this came across to me was it was a bit like. You know, if someone tells you a joke and you get to the punchline and you haven't really laughed because, you said, what the fuck was that about? And it turns out they forgot to mention that there's three three nuns in a fire engine. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, if you'd said that, I might have got it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Or like if someone tried to tell you the storyline of, of the film Jaws, but not mention that there's a shark or that there are shark attacks in the film, you probably wouldn't get why people are so interested in the movie. And I just feel like it's a... It's clearly a, a, a creative decision they made to make it much more mysterious what's going on, but I think it lessened rather than increased the impact of the film. When we when we talked about um, sort of surreal and mind bending films in our last big conversation, there was we we discussed a lot about how much the director chooses to hide from the audience or tell the audience and and, and how that operates. There's only really one rule, in my humble opinion, and that's if does it work. And I don't think hiding away as much as they did worked because a lot of the time I was going, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. And I had to actually look at the Wikipedia kind of summary a couple of times to go, what was going on? And I, I, think, I think you're right about the, the, the resources they had to do it. But I think there's a little bit of a failure in the writing and the choice that they made to kind of not show you what was going on because I think it lessened the impact of the film. And it felt like I, I would have really liked this film if the missing pieces had been there. I don't know if you agree with whether it, the problem is how much they tell you because it's like, what was that? What was the guy on the motorcycle all about? What's going on? Yeah, I think. I don't know I think they were quite reliant on the fact that it is a really good idea. You know, you get a lot of films that are a good mm -hmm. idea, and you think, oh well, we can use that as like a sort of crutch mm -hmm. because everyone's so intrigued by this idea. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of you know information that was sort of left out. But yeah. you don't even know if it was on purpose or not. Whether they just been, didn't bother to think to put it in themselves. Yeah, I mean, and it is a it is a feature of indie films. I mean, it's a, you know, there's a risk with a big blockbuster that that ends up just being a load of crash and bash with no story or heart or, or anything terrestrial. There's always the risk with indie films because they're on a lower budget and they're often trying to do slightly more interesting and, and, and risky things that they don't quite pull the idea off. So you have, as you say, a fascinating idea that's not quite 
developed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd never want to discourage people um, from trying stuff like this. I just think... I, I, I think here's a really good example of, of, of why I think the film needed just a little bit more to kind of show what's going on. Um, there's a scene where she's talking to a guy, yeah, I think he's from the Czech Republic or something, and he's been surfing or he's out swimming in the, 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 the sea or something. And while they're talking, he rushes over because someone's struggling in the water and he runs in to pull someone out of the water and then the guy runs in and dives back in. And there's a baby sitting on the shore crying on their own and Scarlett Johansson just stands and watches it all. Now, did you did you get what was going on in that scene? No. <laughs> no that you mention it, no. And and I think that's that's where the film falls down because w- without too many spoilers, I don't want to spoil the whole film because I do, I, I do think this one was actually worth watching because watch it and maybe maybe you'll feel differently about it. A lot of people love this film. But what's actually happening in that film is that she talks to that guy from the Czech Republic and he says to her, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I just wanted to get away from it all. Yeah. And then he sees what's happening on the shoreline, which is someone is walking their dog. Yeah. And the dog gets into difficulty in the sea. And the man's wife jumps in. I got this from reading. I read a bunch of articles about the film afterwards. And I read the Wikipedia plot summary when I couldn't work out what was going on. The, the dog has gone into the water and is struggling. It's going to drown. The woman has gone in after the dog. Right. And she's now going to drown. Her partner dives in to try and save them. Yeah. And the man who's been talking to Scarlett Hansen runs across out of the goodness of his own heart to try and save the man. He doesn't think the dog and the woman can be saved, but he can save the man. And he takes the man out of the water to try and rescue him, yeah? But the man still desperately tries to go back and save his wife and his dog in the sea, and I think he drowns, right? And the baby is left alone um, on the shoreline um, by all this because Scarlett Hansen's watching this and is not sort of interested in uh in him and uh, i think the motorcycle man comes and gets the the, the body of the uh of the czech guy who's, who struggles as well and what you're meant to see there is that scarlett hansen observes humans putting themselves out to save other humans and there's also a bit where he asks she asks him what he's doing there because he's not from there and he's got a reason for being there but at no point in any scene in this film does anyone ask scarlett hansen what there's what she's doing there or if they do she never answers and I think it would have been much more interesting if she'd said something, even if that something didn't explain what she's doing there, but had some subtext for what she's doing there. Do you know what I mean? And I just think there's a failure to explain there, which kind of makes that, it actually makes everything that happens in that scene less dramatic and less intense for the viewer and less interesting than if they just explained a little bit more. She is an alien. She is seducing these men. She's preying on these men. Yeah. And that is switching the dynamic because normally you'd expect a woman walking around on her own to be um uh the vulnerable one do you know what i mean but she's the predator um and the man on the motorcycle is controlling her in some way so there's some interesting parallels between that and trafficking and all of that stuff that's going on if they just explained that a lot more i think everything in the film would have been better but the lack of an explanation means you're spending more time scratching your head than you are kind of feeling the story is my is my take on it yeah um it's interesting this one's in the classic isn't it because it's probably quite a divisive one i know the critics loved it but yeah it's it's a classic because we haven't seen it and it was highly recommended and won awards and stuff basically um you know if it'd be a hidden gem it has to be one of us is gonna gonna die on a hill for this film do you know what i mean yeah fair enough no i think i think it was it was okay 
look, it's, it's interesting, and I'm, and I'm glad we've watched it. But you yeah. know, I think I think we're going to look back on this and say an interesting idea that didn't quite come off. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we look at a 90s crime drama which suffered by comparison to Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson at the time, instead of being appreciated for itself. The hidden gem for episode 28 is Two Days in the Valley. So James... Had you seen this film before, or were you aware of it before um, friend of the pod Tony suggested we should do it as a hidden gem? No, that's interesting because it's kind <laughs> of it's kind of lost to the time. It was a it, it was released to a fair bit of noise in the nineties when it came out. Um, didn't do very well at the box office or critically, and it's kind of never been heard from again. Um, which is why you know, which is why if if uh, if you like the film as I do, that's why it, it qualifies as a, a hidden gem. I and mean, obviously, this came out the year you were born and hasn't kind of crossed over into the cultural conversation. So it's uh, not surprising you'd never heard of it. Um, but for a bit of background, the film came out in 1996. It's written and directed by a man called John Hertzfeld. He's a journeyman director from TV who occasionally made films. Um, this is kind of one and done with him. He had a, he had one film like this in him, and after this he went back to doing you know a, a solid but unspectacular kind of uh, career directing episodes of TV and stuff. Uh, he's never really done much else of note in the film world. This is a this is set in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Um, an Olympic ice skater is being harassed by her ex husband, but he lets her stay the night. Two hitmen come along and kill the ex husband. One's a psycho who double crosses the other one, who's an out of luck old timer with some redeeming features. The psycho hitman goes back to his girlfriend who's in on whatever scheme they've been cooking up, the double cross. The old-timer hitman survives the double cross and forces some regular people to help him. This brings in various people's personal stories and starts to interconnect them, such as the arsehole art dealer and an out-of-work um, film and TV director, clearly based on the, the director of the film. You also have a couple of vice cops who happen to be first on the scene in the murder scene and get caught up in it. So it's an ensemble piece with like different stories that end up being interconnected. Um... Now, the context for this, which, again, I'm not sure how aware you are, James, of the cultural moment around Tarantino in, like, the early to mid-90s. I mean, I, I know you're aware of how big he got, but were you aware of the the effect he had on every other film that came out at the time? Yeah, I know that the, a lot of them were like, oh, shit, this is popular, maybe we should try to do it too. Um, you know, obviously, Tarantino's films are gritty. Yeah. And I feel like this film kind of was trying to channel a bit of that, that kind of grittiness. Um. Yeah, and it, I wouldn't say it's Tarantino-esque, but I feel like it's trying to like almost be like an echo of a Tarantino film, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, basically, 1990s cinema was having a moment in the same way that 1970s cinema had a moment. Um, at the time, any cult indie drama film is going to draw comparisons to Tarantino, especially if they're set in and around L.A., Whatever the intentions of the filmmakers themselves, there's a good chance that studios and financiers are greenlighting films like that to get on the bandwagon, right? Because what happened in the in the 70s and the 90s wasn't, let's all copy Tarantino. It was, hey, there's an interesting and distinctive voice who's doing films in a new way and changing things. Who else is doing that? And you get, in the 90s, you get David Fincher, Catherine Bigelow, um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, John Singleton, all, all these people, right? And in the 70s, you had... 
uh, Coppola, William Friedkin, Scorsese. Do you, do you know what I mean? You have film directors who are of the era. They weren't copying each other, but they were part of they were part of something. Do you know what I mean? But the studios don't understand that. The studios just want a carbon copy of something that's just been a hit, basically. Mm. So that'll be why this film got green lit. Um, and a number of other films got greenlit on a, on a very similar basis. Um, Natural Born Killers, obviously that's based on a Tarantino script, but Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Boondock Saints, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, Killing Zoe, The Immortals, Suicide Kings, Freeway, U-Turn, Albino, Alliga- Al- Albino Alligators, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, all those films, I think, are much more of an attempt to jump on the Tarantino bandwagon. I don't think this... I certainly don't think the director was trying that hard to be like Tarantino. I'm sure there was a bit of it. But it might have been more a case of people going, wow, if Tarantino can can tell stories in a different way, I'd like to tell stories in a different way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And this guy, John Hertzfeld, he's not a particularly interest, not particularly original film director. So, you know, I think he is, he is reminiscent of other filmmakers. In my humble opinion, he's actually more owes more to Robert Altman than Tarantino um, because this is a very and maybe a bit of Hal Ashby because it's a very ensemble piece and the story's tied together in that way um, I think you're right there is there is an echo of Tarantino there but it's actually it, it's a proper LA movie whereas Tarantino films exist in, in Tarantino's version of the world do you know what I mean? Mm. and I, I like that about Tarantino but his films generally Possibly with the exception of um, of Jackie Brown, because that is part of the Elmore Leonard world. They, they do exist in a distinct place. And this is about L.A. This is about the San Fernando Valley. So I think it's in the tradition of that L.A. crime story thing. And it's in the tradition of that kind of ensemble piece where these different stories interconnect. It's by no means the best version of that. And I certainly think this film has been overshadowed by Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson. But I think that what this film deserves to be judged by is, is simply as a crime thriller in its own right. This is a film that came out when all of that stuff was happening and they just did a, a crime movie with these different stories. And trying to leave everything else aside, what, what did you think of the film on, 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 its, own, on its own merits? Um, yeah, it's all right. It's nothing special. I wouldn't call it a gem. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's anything like special. I just think it's more hidden than it is a gem. I think it's just because it got lost in that era, you know, it's... It's not heard about, and like you say, it's not been carried forward to you know my generation and you know generations beyond. But um, it was okay. It wasn't bad. I didn't think it was terrible. I had some fun explosions and shooting and things like that, which is always good. Um, a nice gritty kind of feel to it. Um, but no, I wouldn't say it was anything spectacular. Not nothing spectacularly bad either. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this is this film doesn't cross over out of the genre the way Paul Thomas Anderson films and what well, Paul Thomas Anderson films don't necessarily fit to any genre. But Tarantino's films jump out of any box you try and put them in in terms of the crime genre. Do you know what I mean? And this sits more comfortably in the box. This is a crime movie. If you like crime movies, you'll like this one. Um, but it's not, you know. I think I think it deserved to be seen. I think it deserved to make a little bit of money, and all the people in it deserve deserve some credit for making a good movie. I don't think it deserved to be talked about in the same breath as Boogie Nights and Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah. Um, but not everything does. Not everything needs to. This is a good crime movie. It's got some nice. I thought it had some nice LA archetypes. Um, the Down on His Luck director seems very autobiographical. I think it's very. It's a nice touch that's played by Paul Mazursky, who's a, a leading director who people maybe haven't heard of today, but he did some interesting films. He was he acted as well. He was in the first Kubrick film, as it goes. Um, I thought the arsehole art dealer was a nice kind of character. His hard pressed assistant. There's a femme fatale, a damsel in distress, but with a twist. 
cops with contrasting personalities, criminals with contrasting personalities. I liked all of that. Um, if I, I do have some criticisms of it. I think Terry Hatch is a bit of a weak link. Um, I don't think she was the strongest person you could have had in that part. But I mean, mm. the cast is really good. Danny Aiello, James Spader, Glenn Headley, Eric Stoltz, Jeff Daniels, the guy playing the art dealer is a British guy who's from a movie I love called Naked. You may remember him from George of the Jungle. Um, it's, you know, it's got some good, good actors playing parts full of stuff I enjoy watching. Um, I did think some of the storylines were left a little bit of underdeveloped. Um, and I wonder if that there was a maybe a longer version of the script and this got cut to like 95 minutes. And you ended up not being able to explore all the all the all the stories as much as you would like. Um, I don't know what you thought about that. Whether you thought there were any loose ends with the stories, or whether there was any any of those storylines you would have liked to have seen more of, mate. Um. No, like you know, what I mean, like it's it's one of those ones where I agree with the sort of loose ends. I feel like a little bit was kind of like, oh, what's going on there then. Um, towards you know, towards the end of it, I thought it was a little bit kind of how's that happened? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, but I don't think I don't think the characters need massive exploration. I don't think it's that type of film where you thought, mm. oh, femme fatale, let's explore that character, or oh, good cop, bad cop, or cops with different personalities, and um, that that kind of thing. Like I don't think it needed to be explored that much. I think it actually did a good job of doing that by telling us who those characters are without delving into them too yeah, much. Yeah. Which yeah, is always yeah. a it's a credit to films actually if they can do that and you can kind of understand what each character is and does without having to just kind of plainly yeah. explain to us. So that's actually yeah. probably a, a, a good like yeah. I mean, I I do like. I mean, I'm not saying we should have had a lot more about Danny Aiello. I mean, I think you did see plenty of his character just to the right level where you know he decides to cook for everybody that he's that he's holding hostage. I thought things like that are nice touches. Um, I thought though that. They sort of left the Jeff Daniels storyline hanging a little bit. Rather than go into him anymore, I would have liked to have seen maybe how that story played out a bit more. I mean, obviously, it's unfair to compare this to Magnolia because these are completely different things. And I certainly think this would have sustained like the three-hour full epic treatment. But this is a 95-minute film that maybe you could have done with 10 more minutes. I thought it would have been interesting because you know that at the start where the art dealer has like, you're not sure whether he's got an ulcer or he's having a heart attack, but he's very, very ill and he has to be rescued. But the person who's rescuing him is like a car thief slash hustler at a gay bar who steals a car and then takes that guy to the hospital in the stolen car. And then he's never heard from again. And I just thought if they... I just wonder, maybe there's a version of this film where you don't fill out every character much more than that, but does his character play any further part? I just I would have been interested in seeing just a little bit more, just a little bit more from the, from the characters. But I mean, like you, I thought... I don't think it should have hung around much longer. I just would have liked to have seen some of the stories kind of play out a tiny bit more. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. I like the way, again, the 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 trick you're pulling off of the movie like this is that there are contrasting stories. You've got the art dealer who's an arsehole and his, his assistant is kind of um, uh, the only thing sort of looking after him but totally underappreciated. Their world collides with Danny, with, you know, Danny Aiello, the hitman. That world collides with whatever... Daniel has been caught and mixed up in the, the the cops get mixed up in it and it's all kind of for random reasons the stories all end up intersecting with each other the trick is bringing that to a close um, which I thought they did a nice job of so with, with with a couple of reservations as to why it's only good and not a classic I, I enjoyed this and I, I kind of liked the way it kind of played out and obviously 
you get to see Charlize Theron's film debut and it's obvious she's destined for bigger things for the, the time she has on screen. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I would certainly say if you like an LA set crime movie and you like a little bit of an ensemble piece where multiple storylines kind of all kind of end up tripping each other up, um, I think you'll get something out of this film. Would you agree, mate? Yeah, it fills a, fills a couple hours. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we feature a classic story of how the Hollywood system can expend blockbuster levels of time, money and resources on a project that never quite gets off the ground. The one that got away for episode 28 is Isobar. So, mate, what was your what was your knowledge of this film before I nominated this for um for this podcast? Um yeah, uh, nothing. Yeah, I haven't I I'm still not quite sure what it is. <laughs> um, did, did you find anything out when you looked it up? It's really hard to actually find information on it on the web. Yeah. Um, that's what I found. It's um, Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. for, for me, because I'm I'm a really geeky and fascinated by stories like this, and because I'm always desperate to make sure I've got enough examples of this to do another episode of the podcast, I bought a couple of our old secondhand books, specifically about films that never got made. Um, this features in one of them, Tales from Development Hell by David Hughes. Um Without that, I would never have known about this either. And I was there at the time. I mean, all, all of this happened before you were born. But, you know, in the early 90s, I'm, oh, what big films are coming out? You know, Ridley Scott is in this story. I'm a big Ridley Scott fan. You know, Stallone is mentioned. Some of the, you know, Joel Silver, who produced a lot of films in the 80s. A lot of people whose films I paid a lot of attention to were associated with this film. And yet, until... I picked up an old book. It's, it's got an old library stamp on it. I bought it secondhand on Amazon. Some, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an ex-library book. Um, other than that, I would know no more than you about it. It's a real, it's a, it's a, a real sort of shaggy dog story of Hollywood. But I didn't know anything until I read the book. Read the book myself. Um, the, the reason I nominated it is this is a classic tale of de- development hell, where a story starts out as a nice idea, a script that everyone wants to film that gets sort of twisted and turned by the system until one, it's unrecognizable from the original concept and two, eventually just dies in the heat because of, because of reasons, because of Hollywood. So, I mean, jump in with anything you did find out, mate, but essentially this, this starts out as a, as a spec script written by a bloke called Jim Ools, who um, he's most famous for being a writer or co-writer on Fight Club, but he's a screenwriter. He he writes scripts. Sometimes they get made into films. Sometimes they don't. He wrote this, and um, he got picked up by a film company called Carol Co. They were a rising film company at the time. They're sort of like they were an independent studio, but they wanted to make blockbusters. There were there were a few different film studios like that back at the time. They've had a hit with Rambo, and they're trying to compete with the big boys. They haven't had yet had the monster hits that they end up having in the early 90s because they were behind Total Recall and Terminator 2. So they made some very big hits at the time. But when this script lands on the desk of an executive, they haven't had that many huge hits at the time, apart from Rambo. They bring in Joel Silver as a producer who's just kicking off his run at the top of Hollywood with Lethal Weapon and is about to release Die Hard. Joel Silver's about to be basically the biggest producer in Hollywood. They're hoping that a combination of Joel Silver and this hot new script is going to power Carol Coe 
up to the level of Paramount, Universal, all the big studios, they're going to make a blockbuster that's going to, you know, make a splash. So this is attempting to be something of that ilk, one of those big action, you know, films, one of those blockbuster films of the late 80s, early 90s. So, mate, James, what's your relationship to that that period and the films that came out in that ilk, you know, Terminator 2, Predator, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard? It was it kind of defined cinema for a few years, but I don't know what your relationship to those films is because you you weren't around at the time. Um, yeah. So I think for you, I think like they're classics in your mind. Like they're probably like the films that you probably grew up with. Yeah. And they're like they're like like if it was Inside Out, they'd be core memories for you. But yeah. um, yeah. For me, I kind of look back at them and think, okay, they're kind of fun, but they're a bit cheesy and a bit they're not as polished as like a like an action film that you could get in in today's cinema but yeah I feel like they're quite they're, what I recognise for those films is that they totally changed the game mm-hmm. so action films before you know Alien in 1979 tended to be you know films like I suppose you could consider The French Connection that kind of film mm-hmm. and like kind of like car chases or like James Bond you know the classic James Bonds mm-hmm. or war films probably the closest you get to like action mm-hmm. and then Alien just completely changed the game, didn't it? Or am I, yeah. thinking, am I missing? No, 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 you're right, no, you're right. No, no. Um, French Connection changes the game for its era, and then along come the 1980s, and a bunch of films come along that change the game again. One of which being Alien, definitely. Um, you're quite right. I mean, so here's, here's what you say. I'm sure you've watched episodes of The Simpsons, right? Where yeah. they're obviously making some references to films of a previous era. And, and something happens, right? Some sort of action type thing happens and someone plays like three or four notes on a saxophone, right? And then they close up on like, what's the, what's Principal Skinner or something and trying to, and he's trying to act heroic. That is because of those 80s and 90s blockbuster films. They were so big that they spread into the, the wider world. Do you know what I mean? They were, the reason that they're big films for me is that they were the absolute, you know, they, they were so dominant. How films were made, how stories were told, you know what's funny what's good in a film heavily heavily influenced by by this sort of thing so that's what they're trying to do here this and and when you read this this is just classic high concept kind of blockbuster fare for the time the script is set in a dystopian future los angeles which is gridlocked and polluted the only fast way to travel is a hyperspeed train a dangerously mutated life form, the result of experiments to create a brain for artificial intelligence, gets loose on the train and starts attacking the passengers. And one lone hero has to fight back and save everybody and stop the train, everyone dying and the train crashing and blowing up Los Angeles. So that that is the storyline. That is the script. It's like, okay, that's what we're doing, right? And like you say, they saw this as their action blockbuster equivalent of, of Alien. You said Alien, that's where they're coming from, right? Um, although Aliens is probably the action blockbuster equivalent of Alien, right? So it's not like this is a completely original concept. <laughs> um, they approached Ridley Scott to direct it. Now, Ridley Scott's been having a bit of a bad 80s at this time after Blade Runner. He makes the greatest film he's ever made, but it doesn't come out in the form he intended, and it doesn't do very well at box office at the time. His reputation doesn't get restored until after this, right? Um, so he's interested in doing something in the studio system that kind of where he can show what he can do, right? He sees some potential in the story, and he starts developing it. He contacts H.R. Giger, who designed the Alien films, the the, the Alien and the, the the Alien spaceship with Ridley Scott. And H.R. Giger's like, yeah, cool, I'm working with Ridley Scott again. Let's design something really different and interesting and, and cool for this movie. 
So far, so interesting. Ridley Scott always gives you something more than just action, right? H.R. Giger always gives you something more than just an alien, right? Let's see. This could be cool. It's not going to be a classic movie like Alien because read the story, right? It's 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 basically a dumb blockbuster. But it's interesting when you read that stuff and say, I mean, what what do you think Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger would do together with an action blockbuster? Oh God, yeah, it would be it would be something else. It would pro- it would be unlike anything we've probably seen today, and that's saying a lot given the amount of bizarre shit that gets turned out from the sci-fi uh, genre. Yeah, I mean, Perfect World, you get your action, yeah. you get your action. You get whoever the action hero of the day is kind of stripped down to a vest and fighting the alien in 80s, 90s style. But Ridley Scott and, and H.R. Giger are going to build quite an interesting looking world around that, right? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Um, you know, now Ridley Scott can do action, yeah? But he was yet to prove it when he signed up for this. So this was an opportunity for him to prove that he could do action. He went on to prove really handsomely that he can do action. You know, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down. Um, he's... But, you know, as a talented director with someone to prove in Hollywood, this could be the opportunity. Um, the other thing that, you know, we talked about it is the way Ridley Scott, he makes the world of the films that he directs so real that it enhances it. The reason people love Alien as much as they do, a lot of the reason they love Alien is he, he brought that, the ship to life, the alien ship, the design, just, you know, the duelist, Blade Runner, Last Duel. He's very, very good at world building. So the, the world that he's going to build and the fact that he wants to have a crack at proper action that's why this is interesting. So the development process for this film takes a long time. It's, you know, they first look at this in 1987. By 1989, it still hasn't moved on. Ridley Scott makes and releases Black Rain, which is an action film. It's a decent hit at the box office, a $30 million budget, $134 million worldwide. It shows that Ridley Scott can do action, right? Okay, rub your hands. Come on then, Ridley, let's have it, you know, keep going. Unfortunately, and you probably knew that was coming, didn't you, mate? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Ridley Scott eventually lost patience with the production. All his ideas for the film, as far as I could make out from reading up on this, these were being overruled by Joel Silver. But by the time we're talking about this, we're getting into like 1990, right? Joel Silver has produced Lethal Weapon, Predator, Die Hard, Roadhouse, Lethal Weapon 2, and Die Hard 2. He's riding high, but he's got very, very, very specific ideas. He wants big, he wants it loud, he wants explosive, he doesn't want subtle, right? And what he says goes. So Ridley Scott says, "Well, I can't make the movie I want to make. Fuck it. I'm, you know, it's been four years. I'm not. I'm not going to carry on fucking around with this." He goes off to make Thelma and Louise and earns his first Oscar nomination as best director. So Ridley Scott's like, "See ya." You know, you had your chance. What happens then is in the early '90s, Joel Silver sets about changing pretty much everything about the film. This film was originally called Dead Reckoning. It, for a while, it was called The Train. He changes the name to Isobar for, for one reason. One reason. This is what. Joel Silver, he's a, he's a bit of a cartoonish character. Um, you know, um, uh, True Romance. Right. The film producer in that movie is based on Joel Silver, right? <laughs> so um, he, he someone sent him a script of, of a completely different story, but the title was Isobar. He didn't like the script, but he liked the title. So he said, let's call the train film Isobar. And it was like, what's that got to do with films, with, with trains? I'll come up with something. So Jim Ools said, all right, and he comes up with an acronym to retrofit it to make it make sense. So the train is then called Intercontinental Subterranean Magnetic Ballistic Aerodynamic Railway, ISOBAR. So big and clumsy, which kind of tells you where this film is going, right? Roland Emmerich is brought on to direct the movie. Oh, dear. He's not a very interesting director. 
Um, I mean, we went to see 10,000 BC together, <laughs> which wasn't very good. Was that him? Yeah, oh, yeah. Fucking hell. But his other films are like Independence Day, Godzilla 2012, Day After Tomorrow. At his absolute best, his films are quite spectacular to look at, but completely uninteresting. Um, Sylvester Stallone is brought on to star. He's just on Demolition Man for Carol Coe. Um, continues a trend where they're allowing big stars to make their films, like Arnie, Michael Douglas. He brings on the writer Stephen E. D'Souza, who helped fix the script on Demolition Man. He'd written Die Hard. They do more rewrites. It turns into an ensemble piece where they expand the lives and backgrounds of various train passengers. They bring on Kim Basinger as a love interest. James Belushi is like the uh, unsympathetic businessman. You know, all these movies are someone who's a complete arsehole and you know he's going to die most horribly out of all the passengers. He's that guy. Um, and they tried to rewrite the monster to make it more interesting because they'd kicked out all of Ridley Scott's ideas. G- Giga leaves because he's, he's only going to work with Ridley Scott. And, and they bring in Rick, Rick Baker to try and make the make the alien at least slightly interesting, although never as inter- interesting as Giga would have made it. At this point, this film could go either way, right? Most of the people involved, it's a little while since they've had a hit. Carol Coe, Joel Silver, they're, they're all slowing down a bit. Roland Emmerich is on his way up. Everyone else is kind of slowing down a bit. Um, and in the 90s, blockbusters change. You don't have Die Hard and Leaf Weapon anymore. You have Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, right? The new Disney Golden Age, right? So there's a moment where they're going to do, they could do one last big movie in the vein of Die Hard and Total Recall, right? This is your chance. Now, if they make that work, that's what you get. And if they do that, say the people who did Total Recall do this movie. Are you interested? Do you do you rent it? Do you watch it? Uh, I, uh, with those people? Yeah. No. <laughs> Roland Emmerich just breaks that for me. Yeah. If I'd watch it on the telly, depending on reviews, yeah. Um, I think the lure of the story would make would allow me to forego that it's directed by Roland Emmerich or Forsake. I don't know what the right word is there. Um, but yeah, I could ignore Roland Emmerich if because of that story. So I would probably still watch it, but I wouldn't pay money to watch it. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't give Roland yeah. Emmerich a penny of my yeah. my wages. So it's about to go ahead, right? with a $90 million budget, which is quite big money for back then, and then disaster strikes. The film studio Carol Co. goes bankrupt. They'd had too many flops for an independent studio to handle because in between the big movies they were doing, they were doing these other little projects that were failing. They tended to rely on one big hit a year to sustain all the other projects, but the balance was wrong. There were too, too many other projects weren't working. There was too much weight on the big movies. Not only that, each of the big movies was relying on a very famous and therefore very well-paid star like Sylvester Stallone, Michael Douglas, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when you're paying those superstars, you're not making as much profit from the movie, are you? Because they're taking $20 million in a cut of the profits. And then whatever profits you're making are, are trying to keep afloat all the other films you made, which are a flop. It's not a sustainable business model. They, When they brought out Cliffhanger in 1993, they were already struggling. They needed help from other studios to distribute the film. Now, what what what's uh, what does the studio want if they to help you distribute the film? Some of the money. So they're not making as much money from their hits, and they're not having enough hits. They they basically put everything on black with one massive gamble on a film called Cutthroat Island. Have you heard of Cutthroat Island? Yes, I'm not seeing it, but yeah, it's a pirate film uh, with Gina Davis. Now, Ugh. pirate films stopped making money in about the 1960s and didn't start again until Johnny Depp got involved. <laughs> um, in the mid 90s, they had a budget 
of anything up to $115 million, depending on who you believed, plus all the marketing costs for Big Blockbuster, it made $10 million at the box office. Wow. So that's it for Carol <laughs> Co. And they pull the plug on all of their live projects, including this one. Um, the aftermath of this, no more big hits for screenwriter D'Souza. Joel Silver's reign at the top is over. He produces the Matrix films, but that's it. He's not like driving Hollywood anymore. Stallone's pretty much done. Kim Basin just never really A-list again. That's it. Roland Emmerich's career wasn't dented by this because he went on to... He had a couple of hits before this and his hits that followed this were hit... His films that after this were hits as well. Um, Ridley Scott has a bit of a quiet 90s. Um, the only way I'd like to see this is if, if, if for some reason, right, after Ridley Scott's made Thelma and Louise, it's 1991, if Joel Silver goes cap in hand to Ridley Scott and says, sorry, Ridley, you were right. Make this your way with H.R. Giger. Let's have a crack at this. I'd have quite liked to see this, um, to see what Ridley yeah. Scott would have done with it. Because Ridley Scott has a bit of a quiet 90s. It wouldn't have hurt for him to have one movie like this to keep us going till Gladiator. Um, you know, maybe maybe Brad Pitt breaks out as the hero. He's done, you know, he's worked with Ridley Scott before this. Tom Cruise has worked with Ridley Scott before this. Maybe they bring in Tom Cruise to just make it more of a 90s-style action film. Um, I would have liked to have seen an R-rated, you know, action film with H.R. Giger designs of the creature and the train, right? With with Ridley Scott directing. The rest of it, I think this is just an example of Hollywood screwing the pooch, really. Mm. So so that's that one. And and really, it's just a, you know, I leave you to your final thoughts, maybe, but this is just an example of how the system just chews things up and spits them out sometimes. You yeah. Got any final thoughts? Nah. It's a shame because it is a nice idea, but yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem like it was the one. We close the first reel of the episode of the Remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we look at a type of remake which many consider the most sacrilegious of all, taking an all-time classic sci-fi filmed in a foreign language and making an updated mainstream English-language Hollywood version. The one that got away for episode 28 is Steven Soderbergh's Solaris. So, James, um, what's your history with these two films prior to the podcast? Uh, none. Completely fresh coming to see these films. No idea um, what they're about, so... Did, did you watch both of them, or did you just watch the remake? Um, I just watched the remake, but I watched a bit of the original just to try and compare it mm-hmm. to the other. I watched about, I'd say, a third or just up to a half of the original, and then I've just not had the time mm-hmm. um, to finish it. Um, but you get the idea, I, you get the style. I did, I did prefer what I saw in the original, though, to the, uh, the, the remake. Um, yeah, this is interesting. So let, let's start with a bit of a plot summary. Sometime in the future, psychologist Chris Kelvin lives alone and having lost his wife, working with grieving patients, all the while obviously still grieving himself for the death of his wife. He is asked to go up to a space station, uh, which is orbiting a new planet, Solaris, which appears to have a vast but mysterious intelligence inhabiting it. The crew, some of whom are Kelvin's friends, are having some kind of crisis due to unexplained events. He is sent to analyse the crew and the mission to see if they should be recalled. 
When he gets there, he is shocked to see the state of the people on the station, and even more shocked to find his dead wife seemingly alive and visiting the ship. It is all linked in some way to Solaris, but is it communicating with them? Is it attacking them? Are they losing their minds? So that's what we're talking about here. Um, so, I mean, th this feature, right, is about our sort of frustration that Hollywood keeps remaking classic films. Um, and for people like us and the people who, you know, tune into this particular feature, I know people like, you know, are more into some features than others. This film could be seen as the ultimate sacrilege, right? Like I say, this is seen as the Soviet or sort of art house version of 2001. Imagine the reaction if someone announced they were remaking 2001, right? Ugh. So there isn't, <laughs> and also the whole idea of this, this was in a foreign language with subtitles, and now you're doing a Hollywood version with, with a famous actor in it. Those are normally things that grind people's gears, like fuck you dumbing down, fuck you going over a classic movie and doing it again. But I would actually say those people might actually be on the fence about this film, because the flip side to that is, is I don't think in the early 2000s, anybody spent the best part of $50 million on a film as kind of thought-provoking and kind of heavyweight as this. And and Steven Soderbergh did this film on the back of a year in which he got not one but two nominations for Best Director at, at the Oscars for two different films, winning for one of them. He then follows that up with um, uh, Ocean's Eleven, which makes nearly half a billion dollars at the box office, his biggest hit. He can do anything he wants. He chooses to do this. He's clearly got a reason he wants to do this film. So it's kind of like, okay... Before I watched this film, part of me was going, who the fuck are you? Why are you doing this? And then I went, okay, well, this part of me is genuinely interested in, in why he was motivated to make the film. Do you know what I mean? I mean, can, can, what, what, would, what would you think would be the reason Soderbergh wanted to do this? Fuck knows. I'm not a big fan of Steven Soderbergh, so I don't really know what goes on in that cunt's head. <laughs> um, the, I'm, I'm not, I've got no interest in that guy's films. I'm sorry. I don't think he's a particularly good director. I think he's very overrated, in my opinion. I just no idea what would make him go, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll direct this remake. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The So Solaris is based on a novel by a Polish guy called Stanislav Lem. And what he was trying to tell the story of in this film is if, if we were to encounter a hyper-advanced alien intelligence, right, would we even be able to work out what the fuck it is trying to say to us? Yeah. Because we're so limited compared to them in, in communication. How would we even know what they're trying to say to us? How would they be able to say anything? Yeah. Imagine you're talking to a caveman and you're trying to explain, you know, scientific concepts to them. How would you even get them to understand it where they're standing there kind of chewing on a fucking bone, right? Um, and he he did that in a way of saying, well, imagine that the the alien creature tries looks is able to look into your brain and sees what your what your fascinated by what you're obsessed obsessed with and reaches out to you in some way with with you know to try and communicate with you and watch that struggle and in doing so it tells you something about human nature um now he didn't like the original version of solaris he he thought it, it jettisoned a lot of his ideas uh for the director's own kind of own ideas which often means there's an opportunity for someone else to remake it do you know what i mean that's that's a window to remake a movie if there's an original story and the original writer isn't keen on the first version, there is some justification to do another version, right? Um, and obviously, it's got echoes of other things that have been done since. I mean, Arrival is about the whole idea of the challenge of communicating with a hyper-intelligent sort of alien species. Um, Interstellar 
touches on it. Sunshine touches on aspects of going out into space and what you turn into when you get there. Um, so, I mean, what what did you think of the remake? What did you think of the new film? Fucking boring. I really don't like remakes that don't try something new. So, what I liked about Dread is that it was completely different to the awful uh, Stallone version. Mm-hmm. It was different. So, I, I, I would understand why you'd want to draw something from the same universe as Solaris. Mm-hmm. But it was, just, it, was just, it was just boring. I didn't find anything interesting about it. I just couldn't be bothered with it. Like, uh, yeah, it was just nothing special. Like, doesn't I'm not, I'm not saying like something new, like an entirely new story, but just try and do something different with it. And I just didn't find that. I just thought it was fucking boring. I think the biggest thing this film falls down on is that it doesn't go into that original storyline. I mean, essentially, the, the original Solaris film, it's, it's kind of weird because it doesn't really focus very much on a futuristic world which I think was the point. He looked at 2001 and went that Kubrick spent too much time building nice kind of models of spaceships, not enough time on the human interaction. Well, that's your opinion. And he decided to say, well, I'm not actually going to do too much spaceship stuff. I want to focus on the characters. All right, fair enough. But he still focuses very heavily on one aspect of the original story, which is your dead your dead wife or your you know the people you've left behind on Earth come to visit you on this space station because Solaris has brought them back to life and what that does to your brain when that happens, right? Um, and I think there was an opportunity to explore Solaris a bit more. Visually, I think it's a bit too confined. You don't see... You know that, that big shot that I'm expecting to see of the ship orbiting the planet and the Solaris is like this seething kind of... looks like an ocean, but it's actually a living thing on the planet and you see the ship sort of hovering over it and you just get that perspective... You don't really get that in the film. It, it It is basically, it has the same problem that the first film has, is that this frankly could be happening anywhere. George Clooney's memories of his dead wife. Um, and the fact that it's happening in space is kind of incidental. Um, I don't know what you thought. I mean, I did like the bit where um, George Clooney's memories of his wife unfold while... Um, uh, while he's you know from the past while he's sort of experiencing this new version he's going back over his memories of his wife and that's kind of been brought to life in you know Natasha McElhone as, as the kind of replica of his wife I thought that was quite well done but like you I was I was unsatisfied with what it did with the story yeah I thought, I thought the performances were good I like George Clooney I, li- I like the central idea because there's basically an essential premise on this is that it asks a very interesting question if you could bring someone to life, right, purely based on your memories and perception of that person, how accurate a portrayal would that be? Mm. And and that Solaris as a film is 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 an influence on uh, Nolan for both Interstellar and Inception. I mean, Inception features the main character's dead wife and the fact that his dead wife is acting in a certain way because of its its Leo's memories and his guilt is created a version of his wife that isn't his wife. Do you know what I mean? So mm. that's obviously an interest that that theme is interesting to Nolan. He went and did something else with it. What Soderbergh is he's gone back to that story and he's focused on that kind of at the expense of some other potentially interesting ideas, you know? It's another mm. one where I kind of I, I have to say I liked what I saw. There's a couple of interesting twists. There's I, I mean it's an early role for Viola Davis. She's very good, but she doesn't get a lot to do. And I just felt it was 
it's the second time someone's done this story. And although the first film is a classic and the second film is very re- highly regarded by a lot of people, but not seen as a, you know the, quite as much of a classic as the first film, they both miss a big opportunity to explore an idea that's kind of left, left, left behind, really. Yeah, I wish I'd I wish I'd watched them the other way around. I wish I'd watched the original first and then just turned off the remake and now we're in. Um, cause it just wasn't I wasn't interested. But I suppose it is a catch twenty two because if you do a remake of a film that has a, a source material, mm-hmm. um, then you're you, you run the risk of pissing off those core fans who think why are you why are you deviating from the story? Why are you not keeping the the story the way it is? But then you you're struggling because then if you make a sequel that's you know basically the same core central idea, then why know, bother? Why bother? Yeah, exactly. So that's I suppose See, that's I, what I don't think I don't from. think this had a core. I mean, if you're going to do the film at all, you're potentially pissing off the original fans of the movie. But it's yeah. it's it's a Soviet science fiction art film from 1972, right? I don't think you've got the same kind of massive fan base to kind of to kill your movie. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. I think what I would say about the first film is it does demand a lot of the audience, but I think it's more satisfying in the end, even though it still doesn't quite explore the main idea. But yeah, I think this... I mean, I think Soderbergh is a very skilled director, and at his best, he makes films that I really like, but I I probably don't... I, I probably like him better than you do, but I do think he's perhaps not... His reputation is perhaps exceeding his abilities sometimes, but I just think... Again, this is from I, I liked a lot of it, but I do feel there was something missing. So it's not an out and out hate watch for me. Nah, I, I, I didn't hate it. I just it was more of a bore. It was just mm. it was like, uh, why, why am I wasting my time doing this? You know, I could watch Brooklyn Nine Nine for the hundredth time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, again, I, I I certainly wouldn't want to discourage people making ambitious sci-fi films. I just wish Soderbergh had been a bit more ambitious with this. But there you go. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month looks at sequel syndrome, Hollywood's obsession with making follow-ups to great movies that often don't live up to the original. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we're grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod, We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second Reel soon. See you on the other side. Two idiots fighting to become Prime Minister because anyone with a brain knows this is the worst possible time. This sentence is far too long. I'm going to try that again. Give me a fucking comma, you cunt. (laughs) 